People like you, organizations like Rave Check, I love you guys. Welcome, everybody, to this very special edition of the Ramp Check Podcast. I'm Tony. I'm Aaron. And I'm Ryan. Today is uh, Wednesday, the uh, 11th, and that date is uh, special significance. We'll tell you why in a moment, but we just put... Another episode of the Ramp Check podcast out, uh, episode number 61. But um, since today, November 11th, is Veterans Day. We wanted to just throw out to you guys a very special episode of the podcast, which highlights some of our, well, actually most of our uh, military veterans that we've had as guests on the podcast. Yes, vet- yeah. veterans and active, right? There is a difference, right? Yes, we want to yeah. recognize <laughs> our active duty friends and our veterans at the same time. So, um, right. well, someday, someday they'll be classified as a veteran. Exactly, you said duty. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I personally am a veteran and uh, have been thanked for my service. So you're very welcome, and to all the veterans out there as well, and are active members of the military. And when I say active, I mean our National Guardsmen, our reservists, and of course, our active duty uh, military out there as well. Right. Absolutely. And thank you for your service, brother. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for for (laughs) thanking me for my service. So, um, (laughs) yeah, do you, do you, um, can, can I maybe take a second and just touch on this for really quick and, and my, my thoughts? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. I just didn't want to step on your guys' toes here. But, um, yeah, so, you know, I was thinking about uh, Veterans Day um, earlier today just because there have been some uh, posts come up on, like, my social media about it and everything. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I got to admit, I got – I had I had like a moment today where I got a little emotional and the reason for that is just with everything that seems to be going on in the country with with so much uh negativity towards the overall feeling of like uh the United States and you know as far as like people saying not not taking pride in their country and problems with people burning flags and and I'm not even getting political because if someone has a problem with me talking about burning a flag, honestly, they can just really go to hell. I don't care about that. <laughs> what I do care about is the fact that, you know, I really just had a thought today about what it takes to be in the military. And I just had this overwhelming feeling of like gratitude of all the people that are serving, all the ones that did put their lives on the line so that you know, we can be here and, and just so that I can live the life that I have. And none of it happens without, you know, our, our servicemen and women and our military. And uh, so for me, I just want to say, you know, thanks to the veterans. And I know you guys feel the same and you'll probably have some thoughts too, but I just had a, a little bit of a, an emotional moment today where I was so grateful to live in the country I do. And, you know, I want to instill that in others, and I hope that we can 
go forward in a positive direction and just freaking unite as Americans and just move forward, baby. Like I, yeah. I wish, I wish nothing but the best for our country. And I know, I know it'll, I know it will go that way regardless. Well said, brother. Well said. Thanks. Thanks. Aaron, do you want to add to that at all? Yeah. Or? Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, Ryan pretty much, you know, hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, I I get emotional about stuff like this all the time just because, you know, how important and, and how proud I am, you know, as an American. And even though I'm not a veteran, um, you know, and it just, you know, I take pride in knowing that I know veterans and uh, mm-hmm. and that I support them. And whether, again, whether they're, uh, you know, active now in the military or, uh, you know, they are out of the military and a veteran. Um, everything that that we hold dear here in this country is all because of them. And mm-hmm. uh, period. I mean, we don't have United States of America without our amazing men and women in the military. Um, they give us everything that, that we have. Uh, all the opportunities that we have, we owe to them. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I really want just to express how, you know, impressive, you know, so many veterans um, and active duty military um gosh i'm like getting all emotional now i'm like totally <laughs> you know it's all good. trying to get these get these words out but it's 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 just pride i guess for for me um mm-hmm. to to honor the veterans and honor our military um you know i as a civilian i couldn't be you know prouder to support uh, each and every one of you and, and each and every one of them. Um, it's, uh, it, it is overwhelming at times to, you know, to think of, you know, you know, life goes up and down and, uh, you know, the country goes up and down and, but we can always rely on our military to be there, uh, to keep us safe and to, to, to know that, if if there is an enemy that does want to do harm to us, um, we've got the best military in the world, or the best equipped, the best trained, um, the best minds, and uh, yeah, thank God to all of them. And and I'm talking, I mean, we're losing our World War II veterans every day. I mean, I I don't even mm-hmm. know what the number is, but uh, you know, all these wars throughout the years, um, whether it's you know. World War II, you know, fighting, you know, Nazis and world domination, you know, whether it's Vietnam, um, you know, Korea, you know, trying to spread the, um, you know, communism around the world, um, you know, Desert Storm, you know, evil dictators in the Middle East to, you know, current conflicts now against the war on terror. Um, we, we owe everything to our military and our veterans. And I'll probably just leave it at that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well said. I yeah, very well said, brother. Um, I remember after I enlisted in the air force, 
Uh, I arrived at basic training. I was like, oh, shit, what did I do? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, but yeah, I you, remember. You wanted to be a veteran in one day, right? In and yeah, out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was ready to be a veteran after about three hours. But um, <laughs> uh, basic training was challenging, and it's challenging for a reason. But I do remember the first morning that they woke us up for you know, morning reverie or whatever, whatever it's called. And we're sitting there, we're standing in formation and, you know, the flag is up and you hear the trumpets. And I remember I just had tears streaming down my face. So I love our country. There's certain elements of our country that absolutely suck right now. There are certain elements of our country that will always remain great. And Part of that is because of our service members, uh, both active and, of course, uh, inactive, which would be our veterans. So um, thank you once again to all of our veterans, no matter what role you play, what, what no matter what uh, branch you serve in. Thank you for standing between us and the bad guys. Tell you what, instead of rambling on and on, Let's hear from uh, some of our favorite guests of the Ramp Check podcast. What do you say, brothers? And and when I say our favorite, I mean I. It's all of our military guests, so <laughs> but they're all our favorite. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I think they everyone understands. I, I, I yeah, <laughs> I think everybody understands and gets what we're get. You know, understands where we're get what we're trying to get at. Geez, I can't even. Speak. Guess who we're gonna kick it off with? Who? Um, are you going alphabetical? <laughs> uh chronologically actually oh, oh chronologically cool. probably fast then uh spinny side up hess is gonna be mad i didn't say him yeah i know <laughs> i know you never please that guy Pfft, helicopter pilot <laughs> oh jeez. all right here we go everybody without further ado welcome to this special edition of the ram check podcast yeah, I remember going to the prom with my dad and coming home with my mom. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember as as a real young kid, I actually had this fascination for trains, and I always wanted to work for the railroad. And then in second grade, I went to a friend's birthday party, and his mom got him a toy F-14, and it had a little handle on it. Oh, it would, nice. You could push buttons, and the lights would flash, and it was just the coolest damn thing I've ever seen. I think I, I know what toy those. you're talking about. I you remember know, that. They called something fighter. Yeah. Or... And you could detach the, the handle off the back, and then you could just yeah. play with the anyway. Anyway. Yeah, and, and so at that second grade birthday party, I mean, that was when my love for trains really went away, and my love for aviation <laughs> took over, and it's been full speed ever since. Did you ever deploy when you were a mechanic? I did. I, you did. I spent, uh, in fact, when 9-11 happened, I was in Kuwait when oh, that happened. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. wow. Uh, which made for an interesting visit uh, after that. But, uh, yeah, I, I was over there. I was in Kuwait for about six months or so. Okay. When that happened. So when did you know that you were kind of interested in getting a flying spot and that you'd be able to get one? How did that go? Well, I didn't. That's the hard part about joining up as an enlisted guy um, is that it kind of becomes the needs of the organization. Mm. And so you kind of have to prove yourself. You, you show up there, you do your yeah. work, you do your thing, and, and you know, you be a good boy, <laughs> and, and they'll send you to flight school. I, and I remember you telling me the story, but I can't remember the specifics of it. But tell us about... 
when I think it was when you're in Afghanistan or I can't remember where you were, but you you said you were like coming in and you had like a near miss or there's an incident or can you even talk about it? Wasn't it with like <laughs> was it the radio tower one? Because I remember him telling me about it the radio tower that wasn't on his map something about um there were either it was like a a, a newer pilot or something and you had to take over are, are you talking about the i i go I ahead there was one go ahead there just was, tell us there was a story, one story about... about we were we were landing in a soccer field and it was in iraq mm-hmm. and there's no grass in iraq um and so the <laughs> soccer field was just like four or five inches of really powdery type sand because, you know, everybody would play on it all day long and it was just like talcum powder. Yeah. (laughs) And we were coming in to land to, it was like an aerosol, you know, we had a Mm -hmm. load of troops in the back. We were dropping them off and they Mm -hmm. were going to go do, uh, I call it the Lord's work. (laughs) (laughs) They were going to go do the Lord's work and I was going to go back to base and have dinner and take a shower. Um, And uh, anyway, it was a soccer field, and and we were coming into land, and and I think that the the local police had kind of tipped off the bad guys that we were coming, in, and they had moved their soccer goals into the middle of the field, and they're difficult to see at three o'clock in the morning with no moon, and uh, coming into land, you know, we get caught in this dust cloud, and all of a sudden I see the soccer goal kind of through the chin bubble of the aircraft, and it was mm-hmm. like, oh, oh, hold, 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 and, whoa, whoa. and by then we get. Uh, engulfed in this dust cloud but you could still i mean in a dust cloud you can still see straight down and so mm-hmm. we weren't in any danger of rolling it over or crashing you know uh and so we <clears throat> i told the guy flying i said hey continue forward continue forward so we we started moving forward to get the soccer goal behind us you know crew chief says you know tells clear mm-hmm. and then another soccer goal came into view um and so i just said go around and as we were climbing out of the dust cloud, just as we cleared the dust cloud at the, at the far end of the soccer field was this two-story house. And I don't know how we missed it, but the, the <laughs> edge of that building went right through uh, the bottom of the aircraft. Oh, well, it didn't hit God. us. I mean, it, it went yeah. through my view. Yeah. And I just thought, damn, that was close. <laughs> you know? And uh, it's one of them times where you get back to base and you... You get out and kiss the ground and think, I'm glad I'm here and not in some soccer field in northern Iraq. <laughs> right. you know? um, I remember one night we were flying through uh, just north of Baghdad, and we were on an air assault. We were heading south, and the aircraft, they were actually kind of close to shooting at us, and uh, I saw the tracers coming from a tree line. Mm-hmm. Well, in our air assaults, we would fly with some Apaches with us. Oh, and, hell yeah. And so we were kind of just cruising along, and I see these tracers come up towards the air, the lead aircraft, mm-hmm. and <laughs> there's nothing that gives your position away like tracers. Yeah, <laughs> these, uh, these Apaches that were our escort just lit these dudes up, and... It was oh, just awesome. You yeah. could hear the guys in the back of the aircraft, the, the infantry guys, you could hear them cheering because we all watched uh, this tree line just get in miles. <laughs> and it was awesome. Yeah, that's got to be the coolest feeling. It was awesome. <laughs> um, again, we never flew during the day on air assaults because, well, I was kind of chicken and I liked the cover of darkness. <laughs> I get it. Um, I, yeah, I'm with you. We're going to get this one bad guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to get him like he is the target and we're going to land in his yard. So he's got like this little garden next to his house kind of thing. I don't know if it's cabbage or whatever he's growing. I don't know. <laughs> 
totally, gates. you know, yeah, right. <laughs> totally blacked out. Um, the uh, cargo is full of, I, I carry 10 combat troops when I would go in on these air assaults. Mm-hmm. So we'd have a crew of four and then 10, 10 uh, infantry guys. Mm-hmm. And we're coming in to land in this guy's yard. Uh, again, middle of the night. And he comes out on his front porch with an AK-47 and starts shooting into the air because he can hear us. But he doesn't know that I just landed, like, right next to him. Like, I am in his yard. So I'm in the seat looking at this guy shooting into the air. And I'm just thinking he has no clue that we are, like, on the ground right in front of him. Wow. Now, under NVGs, uh, all of the infantry guys have IR lasers on their weapons. So Mm -hmm. you can see anywhere that somebody points their weapon, it's a laser. You can see it. Yeah. Yeah. So homeboy's out on his porch shooting into the air, and I'm sitting there looking out my window at him, <laughs> and like six lasers just whoop right up on this guy. It's like predator. Boom, 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 and just he just he's shooting, and then he just dropped, and he was done. I mean, done. Like I think we got our guy. <laughs> See the lasers? That's awesome. I was. It was probably one of the coolest things I saw in in combat. And wow. And I'll tell you this also, in my years, I flew a year in Iraq and a year in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. In both deployments, that was the only time I had ever actually physically see somebody get killed. Was that one time. Just that one time. time. Wow. That one bad guy. And and he didn't have a clue. He was looking towards Allah or whoever, shooting (laughs) up in the air, and just boom, done. (laughs) Dude, I love it. That's so awesome. (laughs) So I'm guessing it was a capture or kill mission. I mean, they were out to get him? Well, for me, it was a land and take off mission. Okay. (laughs) True. Good point. (laughs) I don't know what their mission was. Yeah. Well, I think we kind of know by how it played out, yeah. but uh, yeah. That's... I know that those guys, once they exited the aircraft, I left, um, and they ended up continuing on with whatever uh-huh. operation, intel, finding, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they ended up staying a couple of days in that area, but uh, yeah, it was it was pretty awesome watching that guy get dropped. <laughs> Oh, wow. wow. Especially so close. I mean, you're in his backyard. Just right there. And, yeah. and it was, you know, it was under MVG, so it was kind of like, it wasn't all graphic and bloody like you yeah, would think in a yeah, movie. Yeah, it was yeah. it was almost like it wasn't even real. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, huh, he's not moving. <laughs> he's done. <laughs> I think I saw that in Call of Duty once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I have like this vivid memory of being over at some family friend's house, uh, Back in the 80s, they had just gotten like these new speakers and not surround sound, but some kind of sound system for their living room. Uh-huh. A brand new movie had just come out, which they were going to use to show off their speakers. And it was this movie called Top Gun. <laughs> was, oh, yeah. I was five years old. No joke. I remember being there. Uh, they turned that movie on and the sound was great. Their speakers were awesome, but the movie was a lot better. And there was some about that movie. I mean, obviously the, the cool aspects of flying the fighters and um, being the cool guy and whatnot. But I think what really got my interest peaked initially was -hmm. the idea of like being the best of the best and doing something that not everybody got to do. And the challenge that came along with that. Um, Nice. Nice. And I think through, as I got older and throughout my life, I think it became more clear to me that, I just had this drive to try the things that were difficult and to push myself and whatnot. So that was kind of when my, my interest in flying uh, took hold. But 
to be honest, like I didn't even really consider the military for a long time throughout my uh, throughout my childhood growing up. I didn't uh-huh. really have much military influence. My grandfather spent a few years in the military during World War II. Another mm-hmm. uncle of mine served in Vietnam four years, but never really had that influence. Mm-hmm. And then came time uh, during my junior to in the senior year of high school uh, where I had to start trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew I wanted to go to college, but my family didn't, uh, didn't really have the funds to send me off to college. So I was trying to figure out a way to pay for it. And then mm-hmm. a real good buddy of mine who I hung out with in high school, his dad was actually a retired colonel in the Air Force. And I hadn't really talked to him much about it at all until the point that he started encouraging his son to apply for the Air Force Academy. Oh, wow. So just hanging out with him, uh, I was naturally privy to a few of their conversations. And at some point I heard that, yeah, the Air Force will pay for your school at the Academy. And I was like, oh, well, that'd be awesome. And then we started talking <laughs> yeah. about the potential to fly. And I, all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, hold on. This idea that I had of flying someday or being a fighter pilot or yeah. whatever it was in my mind at that point, I really thought it was one of those dreams that was just a dream. Like it wouldn't ever really happen. You know, like a lot of kids grow up thinking, Oh, it'd be awesome to be a professional baseball player, football player, but the actual right. idea of that happening is pretty slim. And yeah, all of a sudden I thought, man, this could be a reality. So I started just picking his brain and asking him questions and, uh, figuring out if that was a possibility for me. Um, so sure enough, I applied to the Air Force Academy and went through that whole process. And then I grew up a, a Texas A&M fan. So naturally, <laughs> I had to apply to A&M as well. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, through that process, learned about the ROTC opportunities that were out there. So I ended up applying to the Air Force Academy and Texas A&M and an ROTC scholarship through there. And uh Luck, have it. God bless me with the opportunity to go to both. I ended up getting a nomination to the Academy and an appointment to the Academy and also wow. got a ROTC scholarship uh, to go to A&M. Just my faith is, is real important to me. And I did a lot yeah. of praying about it and try to figure out where mm-hmm. uh, I was supposed to go and ended up deciding to go to A&M. <laughs> it's kind of funny whenever I, uh, my mom and dad being the good parents that they are, wanted me to, make the decision I wanted and didn't want me uh-huh. to, didn't want to force me to do anything. Um, and so of course they wanted me to go to the Academy. I mean, the opportunity yeah. for the Air Force Academy is huge. Right. And sure. then I just, I finally made my decision to go to A&M and I remember walking into my parents' bedroom. My mom was ironing some clothes or something. And I was like, mom, I've decided I'm going to go to A&M. And she just like stopped, like froze. <laughs> ironing clothes. I thought she was going to burn a hole in the shirt or dress that she was ironing. <laughs> and she was like, she didn't even turn around. She said, well, okay. Uh, we will support you with that. And you, you could tell that she wanted to say, why in the world are you not going to be But from day one, seven foot at A&M, I knew it was where I was supposed to be. A lot of yeah. good paint came from it. Um, but yeah, so then the whole the whole idea of, okay, now I'm going to school. I know how I'm going to get my school paid for. And that was really what got me going down the military route from being at A&M and starting through ROTC really opened my eyes to the military and what it meant to serve. And 
yeah. uh, being in an organization like that. And like I said earlier, I just didn't really have that influence, not having anybody in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so not having money to go to college is what got me to the military, but it was not long within the first year of me being there at A&M, um, the military became something completely different to me. And it yeah. became something that whether I was going to get to fly or not, whether they were paying for my school or not, I wanted to be a part of the military. When I went into the air force, um, technically you're, if you have a slot to pilot training, you're actually on what we call casual status or you're, you're a casual Lieutenant. And that's basically meaning you have nothing to do. Really. You have no job until you start pilot training, which can be just a matter of months or could be upwards of a year, just depending on how the classes line up. Okay. So back when I was going through as a casual Lieutenant, they could send you all over the world to any base really. Um, and then they would send you to your pilot training base. Well, I ended up, uh, this kind of a connection to your last podcast whenever I was listening uh, to it and y'all were talking about F-117. So mm-hmm. I was actually assigned Holloman Air Force Base as a casual lieutenant back oh, in 2006 okay. when they still had the F-117 there. That's oh, wow. right, yeah. So at that point, they were transitioning uh, for from as a casual lieutenant the Air Force would pay for you to go to either like an aero club on base or some nearby airport and get your private pilot's license, like go through the whole process and get your private pilot's license. Uh, but they were transitioning from that to then sending all UPT or pilot training candidates down to Pueblo, Colorado, where they do, um, now all of a sudden I can't think of it, but basically they do, uh, pre-screening kind of down at Pueblo, Colorado for all guys going to UPT. And Hmm. so they were transitioning between those two syllabus syllabi basically. And so Mm -hmm. half the guys that were at Holloman Air Force Base with me as casual lieutenants went to Pueblo to do this up and coming new program. And then half of us stayed at Holloman and just did some training through the air club. So the first plane I actually flew, I stayed at Holloman and flew the P-41 which is essentially like a Cessna 172 with a little more horsepower on it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so that was the first, first time I had ever flown an airplane. Um, and I had no idea what to expect. I mean, it, it was awesome. Anything that had to do with flying was awesome because I had like zero experience. I didn't, it's yeah. all new. It's unlike anything else being in the air, filling the turbulence, bouncing around, seeing things from a totally different uh, perspective. It was all really, really cool. That's cool. Um, but what was unique about being casual there is that they had the F-117s there, and then they also had T-38s. Uh, there are several T-38s in the Air Force inventory that are painted black. A lot of those are stationed with the B-2s. Oh, yeah. They, they had some of them there at Holloman with F-117s, and they just used those for basically currency hours. So, guys couldn't fly the F-117 as much as they would like just because of the cost per hour to fly and how few they had. And so a lot of those guys were dual called in the T-38. Um, But the T-38 as a two-seater, they had a lot of empty back seats when they would go fly. And so they would let us casual lieutenants just hop in the back seat, which was amazing. Yeah. So I went from Mm -hmm. getting uh, to fly on a commercial airliner to go to field training and then, Essentially, my next flight 
was in the backseat of a T-38 on a four-ship low level through the oh, New Mexico mountains. It <laughs> wow. was so wild. Like, I had no idea where anybody else was. All of a sudden, there'd be someone next, another aircraft oh, next to me, and then there wouldn't, and then I'd be upside down, and then I'd be like pulling a lot of G's, and needless <laughs> to say, I got a little queasy on that flight. It was yeah. <laughs> unreal. I was fortunate enough, I was able to track the t 38 um, so I at least knew I was going down the fighter bomber route. Funny enough, uh, as a FAPE, I told my squadron commander way back then, he said, you know, what do you want to do after this? And that's about the time people started talking about the F-35 and, and mm-hmm. well, I want to be one of the first F-35 pilots. And he's basically like, okay, what do you really want to do? Cause that's not, <laughs> uh, but it's funny cause that same kind of interaction, uh, would happen late, much later in my career, but. Anyway, Vipers is where I wanted to go uh, after mm-hmm. that. And so went to training at Luke Air Force Base for S-16s. Um, it, it was a blast. It was, so, it was so fun learning to fly that jet. You know, in pilot training, I ended up, I soloed the T-37, soloed the T-38. Both mm-hmm. of those were crazy experiences. Um, but it's just, there's something different about getting in a real fighter. Yeah. That much thrust and that much capability um, and taking it up by yourself. I'll never forget my first takeoff in the F-16 solo. Um, Mm. It's funny, like in every aircraft, the first time you take it solo, you cannot convince yourself that you're not missing something. It does not matter how many times you go over (laughs) the checklist. It does not matter how many times you look at the switches to make sure they're in the right spot. You always <laughs> yeah. check yourself. And then when you're taking off in a $30 million jet like the F-16, it's yeah. a whole different story. Yeah, so shortly after getting to Hill, we did a TSP, a theater security package, basically where just a, a unit will go to an area uh, just to kind of show a presence. And so we did that mm-hmm. in South Korea. So that was my first, I guess you could say, deployment in the F-16. Mm-hmm. It wasn't combat, but we went over there for a while. And then... Uh, as y'all know, I'm sure the F-16s have been around at Hill for a long, long time. Yeah, um, a long have time. a huge history here. Well, their last combat deployment was back in uh, 2016, end of 15, end of 16, uh, and that was the Black Widow. So I was fortunate enough to get to go on the last F-16 oh, combat cool. deployment from Hill. Yeah, really awesome. cool history. Man, that's, that's pretty neat. Um, went back to Afghanistan again. Yeah, it was really cool. It um you know, before we went, it had already been decided that Hill was getting F-35s, and everybody mm-hmm. was getting excited about that. But, you know, it's really cool. It's, there's something to be said about um, finishing up the legacy of an aircraft at a base, especially one that, that has had such an impact Yeah, Hill has. I mean, they had the first operational F-16s yep. over 30 years ago. and Yeah, they replaced F-105s. That's yeah. how long ago it was. That's yeah, crazy. I mean, my uh, uncle uh, flew F-16s here back in the early 80s. It's just crazy <laughs> oh, to wow, think about really? the history. Yeah. So getting to be a part of that last combat deployment uh, was pretty special. Went back yeah, to Afghanistan is. for that. And that was fly. Afghanistan, you said? Yeah, and it was, yeah. was kind of interesting to see the difference uh, from being there in 2011 to being there five years later in 2000. Uh, mm-hmm. 15 into 16, the war had changed a lot and mm-hmm. our objectives had changed a lot from 
<laughs> uh, now kind of training and equipping equipping yeah. Afghanistan army and stuff. But <laughs> your um, your your speed and altitude change quite a bit too. Very different, <laughs> like completely different perspective. Like I was yeah. taken off with a couple thousand pounds of bombs every time and a couple missiles and uh-huh. uh, doing combat takeoffs where we're accelerating the over 400 knots, a couple hundred feet above the ground and then pulling oh, straight wow. up. It was just completely different. Like carrying those bombs and understanding the responsibility that goes with that and mm-hmm. uh, knowing that if I release one of those off my jet on the other end is, is not good stuff. And that could either yeah. happen to people who arguably deserve it or not, or friendly mm-hmm. people. And so mm-hmm. um, it was a huge kind of mind shift, I would say. Um, and a totally different perspective on it. I remember in 1912 mm-hmm. being there for the first time. Um, I really felt like I was doing what I was supposed to do in the military. Like I was mm-hmm. in combat and I was, sac- I mean, I lived in a room that was designed for four with six people in a building of 42 total people with two toilets and <laughs> rarely had hot water and not eating the best of food. And, like, I, I really felt like for the first time, you know, like, this is this is what I like about the opportunity to uh-huh. serve in the military is that I'm actually sacrificing now. But it was it was that again, but a totally different, um, like, line of thinking or rationalizing mm-hmm. or, I don't know, just kind of feeling is, is my... It, is it because, like you were saying, you know, what you were doing, uh, you know, whether somebody deserved it or not you were in a combat zone and those bombs were going to destroy something and it's it's what was it kind of was it the reality that that's exactly what was happening or was it do you you get what i'm saying like yeah absolutely um yes it was that um the first time i employed in combat and maybe the whole story is for another podcast, but, um, I went out on a mission, not expecting a whole lot. And the first call I got from the guy on the ground was, uh, that the other JTAC had, uh, just been shot in the oh, head wow. and, mm-hmm. um, was down and that the rest of the good guys were surrounded and we were essentially their only hope. And so feeling that level of responsibility, uh, is one thing, but it was amazing to me reflecting on it afterwards. I didn't, clearly mm-hmm. I didn't think about this in the heat of the moment, but I, my training just kicked in. Like I can't even describe, like, I don't, I didn't think of it as a situation, uh, to the magnitude that it was other than mm-hmm. I needed to do what I had been trained to do up until that point, And I didn't even have to think about it. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and the mission ended up being a success, but uh, it was after that mission, my first time to employ weapons in combat, that um, and good guys' lives were saved because of it, that um, all the training, like everything that I ex- it had experienced up until that point, whether it was pilot training or being a, an instructor pilot there, my NC-12 experience, um, it just was like a realization that all of that mattered, and Mm-hmm. I'm so happy that I got the training that I did. And um, mm-hmm. it was another level of realizing the honor that I have to serve in the military and do those things, you know? Um, yeah. It was, it was really cool. 
at what point did you know you were going to the fifth generation F-35 Lightning II? Yeah, so that's uh, a funny story, too, kind of like I was alluding to earlier about being told, no, that's never going to happen. So <laughs> yeah. Hill found out F-35s were, uh, were coming to Hill as the first operational base. Which we were all just ecstatic about. We oh, were so yeah. happy to I'm hear sure. that just being residents mm-hmm. of the state of Utah. Yeah. Uh, so us as F-16 pilots, we're all like, well, does that mean we get to fly it? You know, what does that mean for us? And they initially told us, well, just a couple of you will be selected to transition over to the F-35. Mm-hmm. Um, and so initially three were selected, um, based on my age, they wanted some younger guys. So I didn't get selected, but then word came out a few months before I actually went to Afghanistan in the F-16 that a couple more spots may be available and so whether i got to go to the f-35 or not my time here at hill was coming to an end and after the deployment i knew i was going to be off to a new assignment and so my mm-hmm. squadron commander at the time asked me you know what do you want to do after this we need to start thinking about it so we can work an next assignment and of course i said well i want to stay here in the f-35 and he said well yeah you and everybody else here uh, but you, you were too old and that's not going to happen. Uh, and so I said, okay, well, I'll think about some other things. Well, then it got kind of closer to the deadline to submit my request. Mm-hmm. Had, had a little time still, but he was like, all right, fast. You know, we got to keep, uh, we got to figure this out. Uh, I know you've been thinking about it. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to stay here and fly the F-35. And he said, fast, that's not going to happen. Uh, well, so how, what do you how really old were do? you? How old well, were you at that point? It wasn't necessarily age, but I mean, I, let's see, that was about three, I was about 33 years old. Okay. But what they were trying to do when the F-22 came out, they pulled super experienced guys from a lot of different aircraft to fly the F-22 because it was the latest and greatest. Uh-huh. But what that ended up doing is creating a gap once those, all those old guys it was time to get out of the air force. Then they had this huge gap in experience because they selected Uh-oh. all guys at the same age who were super experienced. And so they were trying to not do that again with F 35. And so they were trying to get very young people who are experienced enough. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't that I was like super old, but they wanted some younger guys initially. Okay, I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that was like a week before my requests were due. And then it finally came time where I had to like, submit my stuff um he said all right fastest time what are you going to put in there and i said well i want to be a 35 pilot here at Hill Air Force Station. he's like ah, shut up you're not going to do it you're too old i've asked the question it's not going to happen that was like on a thursday i was like okay well this is what i want to do instead i want to try to get to the f-35 as soon as i can so whatever assignments will kind of help me do that and he's like okay we'll see what we can do yeah. and then that saturday Around lunchtime, squadron commander never called me on my cell phone on the weekend, but he called me, um, and I answered, and he was like, hey, Fess, uh, I'm just curious, do you still want to stay here and fly the F-35? I was like, are you, like, I wanted to, I mean, he's my boss, so I can't be <laughs> yeah. blunt with him, but I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I've been telling you this. I was like, yes, sir, I do want to stay here still, and he said, well, some things have changed. We might uh, be able to work some stuff might be able to get some older people in the jet and your name came up in discussion. But before I kind of started pushing for that, I want to make sure you're still good with it. He's like, yes, 
I am still good with it. Uh, yeah. yeah, why are you still on the phone with me? Get, yeah, yeah, exactly. Get, why did you bother go. calling me? You better not have missed that opportunity. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, he was like, okay, I'll let you know. So go to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, nothing. Just waiting for him to tell me something. Nothing ever happens. Then he calls me into his office on Thursday and starts a conversation about normal office work, needing me to do stuff for him. And I thought it was going to be a conversation about you know, the F-35, and it just wasn't for a good 20, 30 minutes, and like, okay, that's all, and I was so disappointed, I was about to get up, he was like, oh yeah, one more thing, uh, you got selected to stay here and fly that, oh, no. I was like, what, are you kidding yes. me? <laughs> he was just miserable, he said, it was, it was awesome, to stay oh, um, cool. that was about a month before <laughs> he went to Afghanistan, I found out, um, he said, oh, but, wow. you got selected, but you're still coming to combat with us because you're one of the experienced instructor pilots in our squadron and we need you there. So you'll go to F-35 training when you get back. So This weekend marks the last weekend that you're part of the, uh, or you you are the F-35 demonstration team, correct? Yeah, yeah that's right. This is the last one, um, which uh, I don't know. I, I'm not really even sure if I've like processed yet, but it's been an amazing year and an incredible opportunity. So I'm just so grateful to have even have been able to do this for the last couple of years. Heritage Flight, two seasons ago, demo this year, and it's been awesome. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. We got to catch a little bit of the uh, demonstration yesterday. Definitely looking forward to it today. So um, just really quick, what's on the horizon for you then? Yeah, so I head back to being an instructor pilot at Luke. Uh, training new people all the way up to transition uh, course people from fourth generation platforms. And that includes all our international partners on this. So right oh. now I'm flying in a U.S. Dutch squadron, for instance. Okay. So I'm going to train the uh, Dutch guys from the Netherlands. Are you going to be training any Turkish pilots? Uh, no. So they're they're gone now. But, uh, I knew those guys, you know, when they were in the program. And, yeah. you know, nice guys. Yeah. But. Um, awesome. So I was going to ask you, so we're, we're from Salt Lake City, Utah. Yep. Hill Air Force Base. Yeah, you guys are going to be right there. Yeah. Yes, we are. Obviously, the F-35 demo is going to transition to Hill. Yeah. Are you going to help out with that transition? Are you going to help? Are you going to show them how it's done? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm the instructor for the upgrade for the new pilot. Oh, okay. Uh, that'll be announced uh, in about March time frame after they're done with the, the upgrade. So we got to, just like the rest of the teams, the Thunderbirds, as soon as we finish this show, we go right into the training season. So we've got a busy training season ahead of us. Uh, and uh, we're going to start simulators down in Fort Worth, and then we're going to do some do some uh, rides at Luke, do some rides up at Hill, uh, and then they'll be certified by March. So it'll be a busy few months. But, yeah, then it's going to be up at Hill uh, in Air Combat Command, which is where it belongs. It's the major command that's mecked for a demonstration yeah, yeah. team. So and, and, again, I mean, you know, then they'll have the reins. I'll be the biggest fan, and can't wait to see where they go from there, you know, because, I mean, we this team this year started the demo team. Right. So we're always going to be invested in – you know, seeing how they do and rooting them on. Well, it's all, it, you're always going to be associated with Demo Team. I mean, you helped, I mean, you basically designed the routine. Yeah. I, you know, the dojo drip. Yeah. That's always going to be there. I mean, yeah. everybody's going, oh, look. It's always embarrassing, but, you know, <laughs> we do it for the kids, for the yeah. fans. You know. <laughs> but, now, the dojo drift has always been a maneuver in the F-35, right? There's oh, no history absolutely. behind that? No, yeah. I mean, and honestly, all the uh, all the maneuvers that we do in all the demonstration teams are yeah. maneuvers that every pilot right. out there in the Air Force does all the time. We're just doing them close to the ground and in front of a crowd. That's yeah. it. You know, so, I mean, we're, we get a lot of praise and accolades as demo pilots, but believe me, we're just average people out there 
uh, just trying to represent and demonstrate the amazing things that all the men and women in the Air Force do every single day. You know, so we're just we're just normal people. Well, excellent. Well, thank you for taking a couple minutes of time with us. We really appreciate it. Have a great performance this afternoon. And, um, yeah, thanks again for being here at uh, Aviation Nation. Thanks so much. Ready to rage. seems like a great way to start our uh, segment here. We've got uh, Brigadier General Novotny, is that correct? That's right, exactly right. Okay, And you are the commander of the 57th Wing here at Nellis Air Force Base. Exactly right, yes sir. Okay, And uh, the Insta- Instagram guru for the 57th as well. I've never been called that, but that is in fact going to go to go into my job title, the Instagram guru. <laughs> I-T-G. <laughs> hey, oh, see, always an acronym. Yeah. I, I remember my days in the Air Force, always an acronym. Awesome. Let's go. How are you guys doing? You excited to be out here? We're, we're glad to have you. Oh, we're super excited. You're asking us this? We're excited to have you out here. Yeah, it's my open house. I want everybody to come out and have a good time. You know, we, we've I, I mentioned this on um, one of the other uh, shows. I said, you know, after 9-11, we really spent a lot of money in building walls and fences and... and uh, uh, and that, unfortunately, built a barrier between us and our friends. Um, and so I've been working hard here at Nellis in the 57th Wing to get people to come on base and get people to come out and see what, what our great men and women are doing. And so the fact that you guys are here is great. You're going to help me tell my story. Ah, that's, that's, that's awesome. You know, I didn't even think about that from that point yeah. of view, but I would imagine a lot of people would be... What intimidated by what's been going on since 9/11? Yeah, you know it's funny. We had a we had a, a conversation with the defenders, so our security forces, when we were having our last air show meeting, and I told them, I said, "Listen, you're going to be the first face anybody sees, and you're going to be the last face anybody sees when they're leaving and entering the, the, the base." And I said, "Do me a favor. They're going to be nervous. They're not going to know where to go. They're going to be afraid. They're going to screw something up." I said, "Just be nice. Be the first face and the last face of that." And so they are. Great. They're fantastic folks, but I can understand people being a little nervous on the installation. But, uh, you know, you guys paid for this, and so uh, we're just here to show you what we do. And I hope you'll, I hope what everybody will take away is that we've got a great group of young men and women, uh, America's sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, who come to work every day and, uh, and work hard to, to, so that we can enjoy gorgeous days like this of freedom. Well, and, and we definitely, uh, I know people take it for granted, but we thank you for your service. We thank all of the service members. Being a prior service member myself, I take pride, and it brings back all kinds of memories when I step onto an Air Force base. I was based at Hill yeah. uh, up in Ogden, but we've been coming to air shows here at Nellis yeah. since we were children. Yeah, and, and we come down, and, you know, we're, we're the guys on the outer fence, you know, seeing you guys fly at Red Flag, and we absolutely love coming down to cover that stuff because we love getting the word out for stuff like this because, you know, it's freedom, the sound of freedom, you know, that, that whole quote is what we really push you know so we, yeah absolutely and thank you for your service absolutely. and and speaking of red flags so when when people think of Nellis or when the general public thinks of Nellis Air Force Base yeah. they think of the home of the Thunderbirds yeah. there's so much more that goes on here so can you give us just a little bit of insight on what the mission is at Nellis sure. and your squadron specifically yeah, or your sure. wing My excuse wing. me yeah so our wing is we, we produce the, the, the we are the home of advanced training in the 57th wing. The Thunderbirds are actually kind of a little bit of an anomaly to that oversight of that entire mission. So 
We'll bring a unit here through a red flag or a green flag, and we'll put them through its paces, and then we'll deploy them to war. We'll bring a, an instructor here, officer and enlisted. We'll put them in our weapons school, and five and a half months later, we'll inject them back in their unit as kind of a nuclear reactor of readiness. So, so we do nothing but advanced training, advanced exercises across the entire spectrum of military uh, uh, capabilities, both airspace and cyber. The Thunderbirds are unique because they don't really fall in that category, but what they are is, is by having a one-star wing commander, uh, they work directly for me. So normally, you know, a lieutenant colonel, squadron commander works for a colonel, but we've kind of cut out the middleman. They work for a graduated wing commander, so I was a wing commander at Lake and Eat, now I'm a wing commander at Nellis. So they work for uh, uh, usually a seasoned wing commander who I can pick up the phone and call the commander of ACC, I can call General Goldfein, Chief of Staff, and I can get them stuff and resources kind of cut through red tape when we need it. So they just get a little bit of extra uh, oomph by having a senior ranking wing commander as a one-star general working for them. And, and now they're a treat, man. They're a great group, 130 men and women. You know, uh, the six pilots get most of the show uh, action, but that takes a whole team effort, 130 men and women, a ton of a, uh, different Air Force specialties uh, go into producing those uh, six gorgeous jets that do an air show. And uh, we're excited. They're going to close the show for us both times today. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. And, and this is the end of the show season for the Thunderbirds, correct? Yeah, this is their homecoming. So last night was a alumni reunion uh, that we had to kind of celebrate. Uh, the alumni all come here. Uh, this is the end of their season. Normally we do this show on Veterans Day, right? So we normally do it last week. But we had a real heart-to-heart, and, and that's a three-day weekend for a lot of military members, and we didn't want to eat into that. And so we kicked it one week to the right to this weekend. Uh, we got really lucky with this amazing weather, and I think it'll be some pretty good turnout. We won't be competing with other activities downtown. Uh, but, yeah, the Thunderbirds tomorrow, when they all land after that, we'll close out the 19 season, and we go right. We already started training for the 20 season. We're already training new pilots. We're training new enlisted members in their different core skills. But, yeah, we really hit it hard about a, a week from now after they close out the 19th season. And and just one more question for me, and then if you guys yeah. have any questions as well, we don't want to keep you all, all day. We, we would love to keep you all day, but we don't. <laughs> anyway, um, so how much of a turnover of the team actually happens at, every, at the end of every air show season? Yeah, so at the end of every air show season, the officers will 50% flip, swap out. So it's a two-year tour for the officers. For the enlisted, it's normally a three-year tour. Uh, although they can't extend to four, but I can tell you, it's really, it's a tough, it's a tough life for the uh, for the whole team in general. The officers bear a little bit different brunt. They have to travel to every single show, right? So the 12 officers go to every single show, so they're on the road about 230 days a year um, away from their families. On the enlisted side of the house, because we have um, a, di- a little bit wider group of specialties, they're able to kind of battle rhythm it with the exception of the, the show line, which are the crew chiefs that work on the, that do the kind of drilling ceremonies. They pretty much go to almost every single show as well. But then we even have some backups for them. But, you know, earlier in the show season, uh, you know, we had a pilot get sick um, and, you know, we, just, we don't have a backup pilot. So we flew that show as a five ship. Um, uh, we've had, you know, they're regular people. They got family issues, too. They got a kid that gets sick at home or falls and breaks their arm or they get sick, uh, you know, and we lose uh, one of the six demonstration pilots and they're out. So, so uh Two years for them is enough, usually. And, and yeah. I've got to be honest, i gotta, I got to get them back to their combat units. You know, this is not really uh, what we're trained and paid to do. This is a really unique mission for them. And once they've done it for two years, they're kind of tired, and I'm ready to get them back to the line to go back and fly combat missions. Excellent, okay. excellent. I have Aaron? one quick question then. Um, so you mentioned uh, Lake and Heath. Yeah. 
if I'm pronouncing that pronouncing yeah, that right. Yeah. So are you? Uh, have you always flown F-15s? I'm assuming most of your time or all of it is in F-15s. Maybe just go into a little bit of that and your 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 background as far as uh, aircraft. Yeah. 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 I tell you what, I'm really blessed. I have seven F-15 assignments. Seven oh, for seven. Wow. All I've ever done is fly the F-15. Wow. As far as being completely qualified, checked out. Six of those seven was in the F-15C, the air-to-air fighter. And then when I was at Lake and Heath, I flew the F-15E as a strike eagle. I flew that for two years uh, based on the mission set that was at Lake and Heath. Uh, and that was important for me to see that. Um, the good news in the 57th is I get to fly with just about anybody that's got an open seat. So I've flown the B-2, the B-1, the B-52. You guys have probably seen some of my uh, IGG work uh, when I'm in the... the you we know, saw the Thunderbird yeah, from just the yeah, other yeah, day Yeah, yeah. So I flew with them on Tuesday. Awesome. Day yeah, when we did our hand, first yeah. survey, yeah, yeah. With, the, with the hand, yeah, I got kind of lucky, and then I got kind of crushed in the five and a half G pull up, <laughs> right? Which I forgot about that was coming. I was like, damn it! Uh, yeah, so I'm really blessed. I fly the helicopter about once every six or eight weeks. Oh, I love flying that. So I really get to see what everybody's doing. That gives me a chance to see what our maintainers are doing. Uh, what's the part supply situation? What's the mission look like? How do I need to uh, understand what, you know, because the, the teams will come to me and they'll tell me about something. And if I've gone out and flown with them and spent the day with them, I go, okay, got it. I know what that means. And I can con- I can convert that into old man speak when I'm talking to higher ranking, you know, people. That's how it works. Good. Well, thank you again so much for your time. Yeah. Uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for the pins and the interaction that we've had on yeah. Instagram with you. Man, I love what you guys are doing. It's super cool. Thanks for uh, thanks for uh, following us in the 57th yeah. Wing and uh, and sharing the neat things that we're doing here with some of our cool paint jobs. And, and we're you know we we got a few more coming. I'm not going to give you I'm not going to give you too much away, but um, but we got uh, we got a few more coming. We've learned some lessons off the ghosts and the wraith. Um, and uh, you know we're trying to we're trying to I am I am dedicated to making the aggressors hip, exciting, and uh, incredibly lethal. So uh, the more tough, the more relevant, the more resource they are, the better everybody is that fights them will become. Yeah. So I see them as kind of the common denominator against the weapons school and the red all those things that yeah. I talked about. Yeah. So we're going to work hard to re, to continue to reinvigorate uh, the aggressor nation. We're about to publish. Um, an internal document that talks about all the things that we want to get done with them. And, uh, you know, the paint schemes, they really don't fall into the, you know, modernizing it. But what it, to me, it's about it's about highlighting their mission, making it hip and cool, and, uh, and empowering a bunch of young folks and their aggressors to come up and freshen up their paint schemes. And so they've been great. Well, the, the word that there's going to be F-35 aggressors, is that part of kind of modernizing it? 100%. That? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So we won't see those here at Nellis for a couple more years. Okay. we got to go through, we gotta, we got to figure out how we're going to bed them down, where we're going to build them. I don't, I don't have all the maintainers for them yet, so that takes a little bit of time. And, and Eglin's not ready to give them to us just yet. They're still using them. Yeah. But um, by about the time Eglin's ready to get rid of them, we should have some of those other things squared away. And I'll tell you, when we have those F-35 aggressors, uh, sitting on the bad guy side, it will. It, it's going to open up everybody's eyes on on how to fight a low observable right. threat that has fantastic uh, situational awareness and long range weapons to reach out and touch people. So it's really going to. It'll be a great. It'll be a, I, I, that. I'll have. F-35 aggressors, so the Wraith is a Block 42, so we call that a post-block. So we'll have post-block F-16s, which have helmet, AIM-9X, data link, better radar, um, 
that's a great threat. Then we'll have kind of our legacy aggressors, the 64th, which are pre-block Vipers, which don't have all the really cool avionics. And then we'll have our contract adversaries to augment that for volume and, you know, and really uh, they they present some tough challenges for us to to get after them. So what a great spectrum of aggressors that when you come to Red Flag, if you are not on your game, I'm going to send you home with your tail between your legs. (laughs) Definitely. That's amazing. And, uh, yeah, so uh, thanks again for take, yeah. taking some time with us. Now, next red flag, just as you're flying over the speedway, yep. just look down and wave at us, will okay. you? I will. I'll definitely do that. <laughs> okay. Thank you again, sir. Have a wonderful thanks, day, guys. and thank Absolutely. you for this whole Appreciate event. Enjoy the air show. Enjoy oh, the air show. Thank you so much. Yes. Thanks, you guys. Great. Enjoy the day, man. When I was five years awesome. old, I was standing on the hood of my grandfather's car on Aviation Boulevard watching the very first 707s, DC-8s, Lockheed Constellations, Electras, uh, Vickers Viscount airplanes landing on the south runways at Los Angeles International Airport. And I said to myself, wow. why, why work for a living when I can do this? Oh, wow. Yeah. And right. 707s going over your head about 100 feet uh, and so forth. And that's when I was bitten by the aviation bug and I wanted to fly 707s uh, and through high school and everything, I was one of those aviation geeks, you know, that would study airplanes and study the history of aviation, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and just enjoyed the heck out of it. I built plastic model airplanes. I mean, I was the ultimate aviation geek. Okay. Went through pilot training at Vance Air Force Base, ended up going to Pease Air Force Base. In KC 135s, which are a model and version of the 707. And for 24 and a half years, mm-hmm. I flew KC 135s, and I'm a veteran of four wars, which is kind of unusual Desert Storm, Kosovo, wow. Afghanistan, and Iraq. And I had my camera with me everywhere I went. So my book, Tanker Pilot Lessons from the Cockpit, is published by Simon and Schuster. Rush Limbaugh did the forward for me, he's a good friend. And there's 32 wow. pictures that I took while I was uh, at various points in my career. Uh, I had a very unique career. Um, I have 10 cats and traps on eight aircraft carriers. I've even driven an aircraft carrier while it was refueling. Let's talk about my airplane just real quick, okay? And sure. the yes. next time, the next time you hear somebody say, let's do a no-fly, no-drive zone over some country. I want you to remember these numbers and your listeners to remember these numbers, okay? Because the politician yes. uh, has no clothes on, all right? when I just roll my eyes every time I hear this. <laughs> a KC-135R model on a combat mission in the Middle East takes off with 180,000 pounds of gas, all right? A little over 27,000 mm-hmm. gallons of gas. A typical American right. family uses about 1,010 gallons a year. So that means I'm taking off with more gas on one mission than you're going to use in your family vehicle in 27 years. During the mm-hmm. invasion of Iraq in 26 days, Tankers transferred 417 million, 133,000 pounds of jet fuel to other receivers. Holy cow. How do you wrap, how do you, how do you wrap your head around 417 million pounds? 
Here's how you do it. 417,133,000 pounds of gas will allow a Ford F-150 truck to make 2,685 round trips to the moon. Or seven <laughs> round trips to the sun. Or seven round trips to the sun on that amount of gas. Okay? Wow. That puts it into perspective. It does, doesn't it? Okay? And I mentioned yeah. to you that I went back and looked at history when we were creating the air refueling plan for the invasion in 2003. And that's when I learned that United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and Bahrain uh -huh. became oil importers because of the amount of fuel that the United States Air Force was using. And what we had wow. to do in the United Arab Emirates, because we were using Aldafra, and Aldafra was using more jet fuel in a single day than the United Arab Emirates was capable of producing in a day. So <laughs> we had crazy. to bring in, we brought in one of those very large, extra wide super tankers filled with jet fuel and they pumped it straight to the base because we had um, 20 KC-10s. They were taking off with 320,000 pound fuel loads times Jeez. 38. Okay. Wow. I think that's I think that's I think that's around one point I have to do the math again. I think it's around one point two million pounds just to fill the KC tens on a daily basis. I think the most we ever got we I think they flew forty missions a day from those twenty KC tens uh once we got the crew level back up. So um wow. your listeners need to understand um first of all, uh Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Gore's footprint, they're amateurs compared to mine. They're, like they're eco footprints. They're amateurs compared to mine. All right. Uh, and that's just the fuel is just the nature of, of campaigns. All right. And there's a, a famous general who coined this phrase, smart men study tactics, smart men and women study tactics. Brilliant men and women study logistics. Let me let you guys in on a little secret. The KC-135 lost the 1954 competition. Did you know that? No, I did not. They, I did not. It, mm -hmm. came, it came in third. Lockheed what? Had really? To what? Yes, it, yeah. it did. It did. Okay. Wow. Bill Allen was an amazing visionary CEO of Boeing at this time period. Okay. And mm -hmm. Lockheed had an airplane called an L-193. It looks a lot like the Vickers VC-10 with four engines uh, back under the okay. tail and everything. Okay. Yeah, back under the that tail. Won, okay. Yeah. That won the competition. Okay. And um, Douglas actually put the DC-8 in the competition. But mm. Bill Allen and Boeing got the final contract because Bill Allen knew in the early 50s when they were working on the B-52 that it was going to have to have a jet refueling tanker. The KC-97 was woefully inadequate for jet air refueling, okay? Mm -hmm. And there's right. all these funny stories about 
the B-47 would have to come down from 32,000 feet to 18,000 feet, refuel behind the propeller-driven airplane, and they'd have to do what's called a toboggan, where they're, where they're descending at 300 feet a minute, just so that the B-47 can stay on the boom because it's going so slow. Yeah, and well, the KC-97... Well, I would imagine it's burning almost as much fuel as it was taken on board being at that low altitude. Exactly. So well, not only <laughs> well, that... And, and to get back to altitude. Exactly. That was the real problem, is they were burning a lot of this fuel to get back up to altitude, okay? And mm -hmm. the KC-97, remember, had reciprocating engines, so it can't burn the same fuel. They actually had to carry the jet fuel in separate tanks in the fuselage. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. But it was still, you know, a fairly decent tanker. And Bill Allen realized that he was going to have to have a jet powered tanker. And he was, he took, and, and this is very, uh, this isn't very intuitive, but while the Korean War was going on, they were getting taxed like crazy because of all of the, projects that they had that were contributing to the Korean War. And so mm -hmm. he took $16 million, and back then in the 50s, that's a lot of money, and mm -hmm. put it into R&D to the jet tanker. And one of the original drawings, and I found this out during my research of my book, they had engine pods like the B-52 with two engines side by side. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then and then went to the four engines, you know, spread across the wings because they were worried, you know, if one engine went out, it would take the other one with it. So they put them in separate pots. Yeah. And that was the final yeah. version of it, okay? Mm -hmm. He went ahead and built the, uh, you know, the now famous uh, 707 prototype, the, the 380. Yeah, the, you know. The, the, dash, the dash 80. The dash 80, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's at and, the Smithsonian. I've seen it. Yes. Okay. Yep. And what a lot of people don't know is that the uh, the three fifty seven dash eighty he used three fifty seven kind of to um, hide the fact that they were making a jet because three fifty seven was the model number for the KC ninety seven, and they named it dash eighty <laughs> so that all the people in Boeing would know that it was the jet powered one, and they oh, walled yeah. off a section. They walled off a section of the Boeing Renton plant and created the Dash 80 like you see up there at the uh, museum. Okay? Famous, famous airplane. That yes. airplane was flying and was already doing things two years before uh, the other refueling tanker was supposed to be on board. So Curtis, oh, wow. LeMay, bought, Curtis LeMay bought 29 of them just kind of as an interim to the L-193. Lockheed couldn't get the L-193 off paper, so Curtis LeMay ordered 200, I think 250 more, all right? And then finally said, wait a minute, I'm not going to have two tankers in my fleet. I'm going to go with this one. But the KC-135, like the KC-46, lost its initial competition. Operation Anaconda in March of 2002 went horribly long, wrong quickly, okay? Mm. All of you have heard, the probably have read the story about the Battle of Roberts Ridge, Tacker Gar, okay? And the SEAL team, Mako 30, that was dropped in there at about 3 o'clock in the morning 
and the helicopter got <laughs> shot up and a Navy SEAL fell mm-hmm. off the back of the helicopter right in the middle of about 75 hardcore Al-Qaeda guys. Yeah, <sighs> that was a Chinook, right? They they were Yeah, it was. Yeah, from 160th SOAR, the Special Operations Aviation go. Regiment. And and believe mm-hmm. me, these guys are the creme de la creme of helicopter pilots in the world. All right? I mean, these mm-hmm. guys are are just phenomenal. They were flying the stealth helicopters, the stealth Blackhawks that landed in Abbottabad, compound where bin laden mm-hmm. was it's the same guys mm-hmm. they're the guys that uh you know do all of the special operations and move the seal teams the delta force uh other teams that we don't talk about and so forth move them around i mean they are the premier helicopter guys in the world bar none all right mm-hmm. <clears throat> but our intelligence uh was bad because of the way we planned that particular operation and uh, there was a lot of holes in the plan, and that was the Air Force's uh, being able to help with that because they gave us the the Army gave us their plan five days before it was supposed to kick off, which mm-hmm. is stupid. We should have had drones and everything flying over the area, establishing patterns of life. If we'd have had that kind of even two weeks of notice, we would have had drones flying over Takagar. We would have known that there's 75 to 100 guys up there. This wouldn't have happened. But because of bad weather and a bunch of other things, uh, they had a blizzard the night before on top of this mountain. There was fresh snow that was up to the guy's knees and thighs, uh, all these kinds of things. And that was the first thing that, that that Chinook pilot saw was there were fresh tracks in the snow. And that's when he first went, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And it was moments after that that he got tagged. Okay. And Roberts wow. falls off the mm. back. Okay. So I recently talked to Chris Russell. Chris Russell was the Wizzo in the back of one of the F-15Es, call sign Twister 5-2. We did a graphic for him for Christmas. We did his airplane that he was flying in this battle. And they had come down in the middle of the night and already been flying for a couple hours when they were told to contact uh, Mako 30 on the ground, and they had no idea who it was, okay? They'd already mm-hmm. refueled three times. They'd already dropped a bunch of bombs on different things and so forth. Uh, Twister 5-1 was the lead. Twister 5-2 was uh, Chris Russell, and uh, his uh, pilot, uh, his call sign was Panzer. Rykoff was his pilot. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, they're called to come and and help with this rescue, but they don't know it. They don't have any idea that there's a rescue going on. And oh, by the way, at that time period in 2001, there was no close air support doctrine in any of their manuals. None of them had shot a gun at a ground target because that was not in their doctrine. None of them had dropped Mm. bombs in the close air support role working with uh, ground uh, forward air controllers, JTACs, all those kinds of things, and now they're thrust into this, all right? Fortunately, Jeez. the pilot in Twister 5-1 had been a former A-10 guy and knew how to do oh, this, okay. okay? All right, his name is Chris Short. He's Perfect. a Brigadier General now, okay? He's a Brigadier General now. And his backseater, uh, Chris's backseater, was a guy, a lieutenant colonel by the name of Fairchild, call sign Meat. So you got Junior and Meat in one airplane, and Panzer and Spliff 
and the other, okay? <laughs> and they're like, you know, what are we doing here? Who are we, who are we talking to here? Who's Mako 3.0? You know, make, this is Mako 3.0. We need help right now. We need help right now. And see, they've already captured, um, they've already captured Neil Roberts. They've already executed him. And Britt Slavinsky, yeah. the SEAL guy, is on the top of the mountain trying to recover him and his body. Still doesn't know what's going on. And now they're in a firefight that uh, John Chapman eventually wins the Medal of Honor in, too. So does Slavinsky. <clears throat> and they're, they're, they're having this intense fight. They're shooting the gun at ground targets for the very first time. And Chris Russell sent me his video from his targeting pod and his HUD. And you can see the helicopter crashed on the mountain in the video. All right? Oh, wow. wow. And Incredible. they're coming in and they're strafing these things, but they're having to come off for gas because these are very intense missions and they're very mm -hmm. gas. Cons uh, they consume a lot of gas doing these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I had put and created three air refueling areas around the Shaikut Valley. And I, since we have air superiority, we own the air, I put them just a few miles, less than 20 miles south of the valley at 21,000 to 28,000 feet. Two of them to the south, one of them to the north. I named them Rush, O'Reilly, and Hannity. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> Rush, O'Reilly, and Hannity. All right. Bravo. And so, <laughs> but here's the problem. They're having to recycle off of the tanker so that one of them can stay overhead at all times. And the reason mm -hmm. I put them so close was so these guys only had to go five minutes to get gas. Five minutes instead mm -hmm. of 30 minutes, okay? And they continued to cycle on and off and ended up dropping all nine of their uh, GBU-12 500-pound laser-guided bombs shot all 510 rounds out of their gun. They went home Winchester, no ammo on the airplanes whatsoever. And then two oh, F-16s wow. came in behind them. Two F-16s came in behind them and dropped laser-guided bombs, shot their guns, all right? And uh, let's see, the lead pilot was call sign Divot. His name is uh, Barkley. And what was the other guy's name? Anyway, they're Class 7-1 and Class 7-2. So they come in, and they're now on scene, but they've shot the gun at ground targets. They've dropped GBU-12s working with, with uh, close air support guys on the ground and so forth. So, But they're, mm -hmm. again, cycling mm -hmm. on and off the tanker every five minutes throughout this 17-hour fight. So the yeah. gas is closed. They're only having to drive five minutes to get the gas, fill up, go back in, fight again, you know, and they're cycling off the tanker and so forth. Because, as you said earlier, nobody kicks ass without tanker gas. <laughs> so all these airplanes. Hell yes. And because we had air superiority and we didn't have to worry about air threats, we were able to put the air refueling areas right next to the target area and have guys cycle mm -hmm. on, guys and gals cycle on and off and so forth and help rescue this team and cover this team. Yeah. And I found a briefing that has the after-action photos of the top of the mountain, okay? One of the things mm -hmm. the helicopter guy said, the first helicopter guy said, he said, wait a minute, something's not right here. He saw 
two goat carcasses in the trees and a donkey tied to the same tree. And he's like going, wait a minute, there's people living up here. And his mind is trying to process all of this when he gets hit by RPGs, a 50 caliber gun called a Dishka gun, small arms fire. Roberts falls off the back because the hydraulics fluid is pouring out everywhere and it's hot. He falls from about 10 feet in there, but the pilot guns the helicopter and gets off, lands in the valley, and then he's told by the SEAL team in the back, we left a guy up there. Oh, geez. And now they go geez. get on another helicopter and Slavinsky and his team go back up there knowing that they're going to get tagged hard. <clears throat> and Slavinsky even <clears throat> said while he was flying up there, he was saying goodbye to his two daughters because he didn't think he was going to live through it. But because oh. we were able Oof. to provide provide gas close to the target area, the F-15Es, the, the F-16s, and then it was eventually F-14s and F-18s that were also called into this, were able to provide top cover for this rescue and keep cover over the top of them through that whole 17-hour time period. Because there was a counterattack wow. later from behind them, about 10 o'clock, uh -huh. where, where uh, Jason Cunningham is a, uh, a pararescue guy, and he gets shot, and he bleeds out on top of the mountain. But the F-18s come mm -hmm. in and drop bombs on them, and it was because they didn't have to go that far for gas. Could you just sort of share with our listeners um, what it was like um, for you in your position at the time, uh, the morning of September 11th, and just sort of kind of maybe give our listeners a, a glimpse of, you know, from your mouth, what that was like. Sure. <laughs> we're that was we're fascinated. Hey, we want to hear When you again. told that story, Mark, it like stuck with me. So, yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of, well, you know. It's like the day you got married. It's It's an image that will never leave your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things, you know, when your kids are born, when you're married, there's just certain images that will never leave your brain ever again. And you can close your eyes and within nanoseconds bring that situation back to your cranium. Mm -hmm. Travis, our youngest child, had been born a month before on the 16th of August. I had just come off of maternity leave. I had flown one flight, I think Thursday the week before. I was not scheduled to fly that day, but I was going to come in and do some work or instruct. At 5.50 in the morning, one of my wife's dear friends, Stacy, calls on the phone and again, being a light sleeper, woke me up and I could hear her screaming through the phone going, where's Mark? Where's Mark? Where's Mark? And my wife, Valerie, said to her, well, he's right here next to me with the baby. It's 550 in the morning. You know, get a clue here, lady. <laughs> and, and she goes, have him turn on the TV. An airplane has hit a building in New York. And I rolled over groggy, and, and I am a news junkie. <laughs> so I had the remote next to me. I pick it up. I turn on Fox News. 
and I see the North Tower burning. Yeah. That first image in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, how could an airline pilot with thousands of hours, tens of thousands of hours, run into something like that? Mm -hmm. But my subconscious was saying, you are under attack. Mm -hmm. But I kept putting it out of my mind, and I'm sitting there and I'm listening, and it's only four minutes after the first tower has been hit. And I'm sitting there in bed, Travis between us, and we're watching this, and I'm wa listening to him, and they were, but in my subconscious, I'm going, you got to get going. You're under attack. Yeah. You're under attack. And, and, but I'm fighting my own emotions, thinking to myself, first of all, nobody would be stupid enough to do that. Mm -hmm. And you go through your head, and you're saying to yourself, nobody would do that. Who could possibly do such a thing? You know, but at the same time, how could an airliner with two pilots, tens of thousands of hours, hit a building square like that? And while I was going through this in my head and was listening to the morning Fox News commentators, I saw an airplane come out of the top right of the screen, turn and disappear behind the towers. And I thought, where's that guy going? <laughs> And then I saw the fireball yeah. come out. And immediately, it was like a switch in my back had gone from off to on. Mm -hmm. And my blood was pumping. My brain was wide awake. And I stripped off all my clothes, run into the shower. Because I don't know why this entered my head, but I didn't want to go to work with messy night hair. <laughs> okay? I, why do you think that? I don't know. But I said to myself, I want to wash my hair because I don't know when I'm going to be home again. Yeah. And I'm the lead planner, a lieutenant colonel, lead planner, graduate, former commander of the only tanker graduate school in the world. And our third class was going through at that time. Mm -hmm. I get in the shower and I'm shaving real quick, washing my hair. I'd only been in the shower about three minutes when my wife comes in and said, you just got recalled. The wing commander just called and recalled you. He wants you to come in immediately. I said, okay. My wife sensed I was in a hurry. She had my boots, a new flight suit out, everything laying on the bed threw that all on and I'm sitting there watching two buildings burn now. Sure. And I got to tell you, I'm pissed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I am. I am. All of those emotions of somebody is trying to kill me. Mm -hmm. It is time to go kill somebody who's trying to kill me. Mm -hmm. And that was a very common emotion when I was in work that day. Mm -hmm. My wife asks me the typical question, silly question, hon, when do you think you're going to be home? And I'm lacing up my boots, watching TV, and I said, hon, tonight, tomorrow, Friday, I don't know. I love you. 
and by this time, all my kids are in on the bed, and they're crying and everything. They see Dad to hurry in, and they see buildings burning. And it affected my kids. And I ran downstairs, got in the car, and left with a couple of my kids crying behind me. Mm -hmm. Came down off the South Hill. I uh, went kind of the back way. And the next thing I see are cops, and they are all rucked up. Helmets, bulletproof vests, shotguns, ARs in their cars, everything. Of course, they see me in uniform, and they're kind of giving me the thumbs up, you know, and I'm giving them the thumbs up. I'm good, I'm good, I'm on my way into work. And I just keep going on the freeway, get to the get to the base. And there's this long line to get on the base because they've recalled a lot of people to come in and help. And there's only one way to get on the base, and that's through this one gate. Hmm. And I was really worried that somebody could just come down and just throw hand grenades and take out half of the personnel on the base. Yeah. Unfortunately, they had people guards all the way down, and we got in. I got into the command post just uh, just before the Pentagon uh, got hit. Mm. That was the next thing I saw on TV, and you know, it, and you see, you know, the alert, and they start saying an airplane has hit the Pentagon. And now we're thinking to myself, oh my gosh, what's happening now? Yeah. Now, I'm going to shift gears real quick. A very good friend of mine was an F-16 pilot with the Fresno Guard. All they do is air defense. Mm -hmm. They don't do air to ground at all. All they are, their whole mission is to defend the western united states so they've got airplanes on alert up and down the west coast of course the f-15 unit of portland same thing he got a phone call at exactly the same time i did from his sister-in-law which woke him up at 5 50 in the morning he says he remembers seeing it on the clock it was from his wing commander his wing commander told him Come in now. Don't worry about the lights. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and and my my buddy's call sign is Shredder. And Shredder goes, sir, what are you talking about? He said, turn on the TV. Get here as soon as you can. He turns on the TV and he sees the same thing I do. And he's an American Airlines pilot. Oh, so he sees the building burning. And I can't remember if it was an American plane that hit the first building or not. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was, it was American. They hit first. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So here they're telling him American has hit the building and he's an American pilot. So he's thinking to himself, wait a minute. This is somebody I know. This is somebody I know. But he's getting dressed and getting ready to go in. And Andrea's wife is like the same thing. Okay, you know what's going on? You know, he says, "I'm going, I'm going flying." I guess. And he makes this mad dash to the base. They have a jet ready for him when he's there. He says, "You two brief." He's he's the wingman. He's got his flight lead, and they take off as a pair in two F-16s, and their cap station is San Francisco International Airport. Jeez. <clears throat> 
So they turn and head for San Francisco International Airport as a two-ship. He gets over the top of San Francisco International Airport, and he says, it was the eeriest thing he's ever seen. Not a vehicle was moving. Wow. Hmm. He looked down. He says, they went into the first turn, and he looking down. There's no cars moving. There's no trucks moving. There's no fuel trucks moving. There's no airplanes moving. Everything is completely shut down at a major, major international airport. Jeez. The next thing they have to do is figure out what is our rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. Because both of them were airline pilots. Now, I want you to think about this. I want your listeners to think about this. They're now talking across the radio how they might have to shoot down one of their buddies. Jeez. You don't think about that when you're, when you're, oh, when all this is going on or even afterwards, you know, it, oh, there's no rules of engagement, <clears throat> right? Mm -hmm. There's no rules of engagement for, for employing live weapons on an airliner that's being used as a cruise missile in the United States. Everything was on the fly. Hmm. And so he, if I remember right, he and his flight lead came up with the idea so that neither one of us has to live with the grief of shooting down American citizens. We will both fire together. Wow. All right. And the F-16 burns about 3,500 pounds an hour, carries 9,000 pounds internally, 350 gallons in each tank. So they're going to need gas soon. You see where the story's going? Yeah, I sure do. <laughs> Enter the tanker. F-15s. F-15s are taking off out of Portland. They burn 8,000 pounds an hour, hold about 15.5 or so. Uh, they probably had two external tanks, 4,000 pounds more. And so all of these airplanes are burning gas, capping over all of the big population centers across the, the West Coast. Mm -hmm. But tankers haven't been launched yet. Mm. And the Western Air Defense Center, well, excuse me, Western Air Defense Sector is called, call sign Bigfoot. And Bigfoot's managing all of these fighters and everything, and they're trying to get tankers up. And I'm at the largest tanker base on the West Coast. When I get in, we have 45 minutes to figure out how to refuel all these fighters that are already airborne. Hmm. But yet, at the same time, we haven't gotten orders to have anybody fly. Fortunately, one of my good buddies who worked for me during the invasion in 2003, two years later, Weibo is the main scheduler for the base, and he's already putting crews and crew rest, already getting diplomatic clearance with the Canadians to open up airspace uh, over Vancouver and next to, um, oh, shoot, what's the name of the base in Alberta? They have another base in Alberta where their F-18s were doing an exercise, and uh, he called that one a stampede. 
because it's it's where they have the big stampede every year <laughs> in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. And then the one near Vancouver, he called Orca, you know, after killer whales, because there's always killer whales. In there. <laughs> all right. But all of these airplanes are airborne, and now they're needing gas, looking for gas. And we're having to launch sorties to go up and refuel them. And our very first sortie out of Spokane, Washington, is to go to Bozeman, Montana. And we're like going, what? (laughs) What the heck is in Bozeman, Montana? What's so important at Bozeman, Montana, that I have to leave airplanes over Seattle that need gas now? And they said, that's your first mission. And what it was, was the Federal Emergency Management Agency's team that deals with these kinds of disasters. They had been at Bozeman, Montana, doing an exercise and needed an immediate ride mm-hmm. to Washington, D.C. and New York City. Wow. Shortly thereafterward, we were told, launch airplanes. And fortunately, Weibo had crews that were coming in on training missions that could launch, and he was pumping every airplane up to 180,000 pounds. Maximum fuel load, 180,000 mm-hmm. pounds. And he had called down to billeting, got rooms for these guys. You guys stay there until I call you. And all these guys were in their rooms getting called. Okay, you're going to Seattle. Okay, you're going to Portland. And I'm in the command post thinking, okay, what are the five places that we need to defend? Biggest population centers from north to south. Okay, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego. Mm -hmm. Where are all my alternates? Where can I land? If I can't land back here, where am I going to go? Okay, well, I've got... Airplanes, McCord is a base, Spokane's a base, Portland is a base, Travis is a base, March is a base. Uh, don't want to use North Island Naval Air Station because it's got a short runway, but it, you know, it'll do in a pinch. And so all these things are what I'm having to go through in my mind, and I'm doing all this tanker math to figure out how many tankers I'm going to need. And my answer was about 140 tankers a day. And we were going to, just to do the West Coast, it was going to cost about 17 million pounds a day wow. <laughs> to keep to keep a 24-hour combat air patrol over each one of these cities. An F-15 four-ship to fly a 24-hour cap requires 18 KC-135 sorties if they're not shooting missiles. <laughs> because Because if you're shooting missiles, the first thing that comes off is the centerline fuel tank at 4,000 pounds. You've immediately lost 4,000 pounds of gas that you will not get back. Mm. Wow. And so I had to figure all this into my into my brain, and that's what I'm doing while I'm going in. So my buddy Shredder is already launched, and I know he's already airborne. Mm. And I know the Portland Guard's already airborne, so I've got to react quickly mm-hmm. to getting all these airplanes out. But Air Mobility Command was still waiting to hear what do you want us to do because we've never been through anything like this. Right. And then finally, North Northern Command and the people at Cheyenne Mountain are going, we got caps all over. We got to get tankers. Up, we gotta get, and, and finally stuff started coming in. And so now all of a sudden there's this big burst of activity and tankers are flying all over. But I told my wing commander, I said, sir, we are going to have airplanes on alert. We have to figure out where we're going to put them. We've got this old strategic air command alert facility out there. We haven't used it in a decade. They actually sent an airman out there with a telephone 
and had him plug it in and call the <laughs> command post to make sure the phone system worked. Because <laughs> nobody had been in there for a while. <laughs> nobody had used it. Wow. That morning, there were seven tankers on alert throughout the United States at, at 8 o'clock when the first airplane mm -hmm. By 4 or 5 o'clock that afternoon, I think there was 142. Wow. We're uh, honored and lucky to have uh, Chris Holmes on with us today. You guys, at least a lot of our followers and listeners, follow us on Instagram. He is at dope767driver on Instagram. Um, yo, yo. So, yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Chris. <laughs> yo, yo, yo. <laughs> How's it so, going, Chris? Um, Thanks for jumping on board the podcast with us. Oh, yeah, it's going, man. Just bored in a house, bored in a house, bored in a house. Yeah, I know. We could, we could say that probably three, four more times. <laughs> oh, man. Don't start that. Oh, my God. So before yeah. we before we get any further, uh, Chris, I just want to um, – your, uh, your name, Dope767Driver, um, I'm guessing that came from something. But, but let me say it's probably a good thing that it's not 767Dope-Driver. Right. <laughs> exactly. That would probably, probably send the wrong message. Yeah. It depends on, I, uh, it depends on who I, you're asking, Tony. Whether that's yeah, bad. Or not. I, used to, I used to. I used to go to South America a lot. So yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Th th thanks for joining us, uh, Chris. I I think um, Aaron has kind of uh, talked to you a little bit here and there, but uh, why don't you just kind of go ahead and give our listeners uh, kind of a little background where you're from and what it is that you do and kind of where your love of aviation may be originated. Just kind of give us a little background if you don't mind. All right. Yeah. Like I was saying, um, uh, my wife and I were from Goldsboro and I uh, were at home of Seymour Johnson Air Force Base is that. And uh, I was stationed there for nine years as an F-15 crew chief. So I crewed strikes on a flight line Ooh. for nine years for becoming an instructor. Yeah. They, wow. they, they had Air Force volunteered me to go to Wichita Falls. That's how I ended up in Texas <clears throat> and um, to be an instructor. And, and everything came to a halt. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It was because it's, it's a drag. Because when you're on an Air Force flight line as a crew chief, man, especially on a fighter base, you're yeah. going like 200 miles an hour, giving 200% all day, <laughs> every day, nonstop. <laughs> Yeah, and, and then you get hooked. You get hooked up with the Air Training Command. Next thing, <clears> everything <throat> comes to a complete halt because you're training no stripers up to two stripers how to fix airplanes and stuff like that. And it's it, it was boring as hell. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but well, somebody oh, yeah. has to do it. You yeah, probably are the man to do it. <laughs> yeah, and it was boring as hell. It, I mean, yeah. it was my it was my my most productive time though. You know, finishing college and all that stuff and. Working uh, on flying, yeah. getting building up time and stuff like that. Sure, and, um, sure. Yeah, and I, that would yeah. explain all the F fifteen photos on your Instagram page. Then, oh yeah, that's my jet, man. I love, I love all airplanes, man. And there's not too many airplanes I don't like. I've always had right. a passion for them. My my dad, he's a retired flight engineer, Air Force and civilian. So, um, oh okay. So um, yeah, so I've been around airplanes, especially military planes, ever since I was born. What type okay. of aircraft so was explained. he on? He flew, man. He started out in the Marine Corps, and he uh, he was on C-130s in the Marines, and then mm -hmm. uh, Cherry Point, and then uh, he flew uh, 141s at Charleston. 
Oh, oh wow. then yeah, then he got special duty. He flew presidential. He flew oh, presidential wow. support at Andrews for the Reagan administration. Oh, oh nice. nice, that is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then he had. Uh, then his path kind of split just a little bit. He went to reserves, and then he got a job as a police officer, his full time. Mm-hmm. And then oh, Air okay. Force, Re- yeah, at Air Force reserves. He uh, flew at KC-10s, C-5s, C-130s again. And then, oh, man, uh, that's cool. Yeah, Quite a career. And then, yeah, and then in airlines, he flew uh, He flew for American Transair. There's 727s and L-1011s. Oh, nice. So cool. Good old L-1011s. Yeah. I remember those. Yeah, <laughs> then he, then he kind of he kind of retired. Then he became a state trooper in Virginia. And when I okay. went to fly for American Eagle and back in 07, when I got out, got off of back to duty and went flying for Eagle, he got an itch again and he got hooked up with Coletta. Coletta? Coletta the, uh, the cargo air. Oh, the yeah, cargo yeah, 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 yeah. Tiny right, Coletta. Right, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Him, him and the chief pilot flew KC-10s together. So oh, when oh, he, wow. Awesome. Yeah. So when well, he went, when he and, went to, when, go, go ahead. If you're from Utah. We call it Kalita. <laughs> Kalita? <laughs> Kalita, yep. Anyway, continue. <laughs> True. <laughs> and then um, he did. He flew with them for about 15 months, and he, then he figured out he was sick of flying. Oh, okay. And ever since then, it, ever since then, it's hard to drag him out here to Texas to come see me, especially on the airplane. He'd rather drive. So you were in the Air Force. You were yep. working with F-15s, and, and yep. like Ryan said, that explains all your F-15 love, which is cool. Which by the way, we appreciate you wearing our F-15 swag and posting about oh, it. Man. That's, that's pretty I'll awesome. Yeah. You yeah. were our first customer with that, <laughs> with our F-15 swag. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> um, so then after, I guess you were in the Air Force for a while, and then you decided to fly in the airlines. Was that the next step? Yeah, that was the next step, man. I was uh, the entire time I was in active duty, man. I was flying building time, flying pipeline patrol, okay. and all this other stuff. CFIing. Oh nice. wow, nice. And, okay. And then honestly, honestly, guys, I got I got tired of dealing with the Air Force. The, the way the direction that it was going, man, uh-huh. it, a lot of the, a lot of a lot of the fun. I, I, and I know we're about business, and when when it was time to take care of business, business was business. But we like to have fun, you know. Crew chiefs like to work hard. And play harder, you know. Okay. And it just, yeah. it just, it just became a drag, man. And then the airline, the regionals were hiring. I had the flight time, and I was like, man, it's time to live the dream, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, in 2007, okay. after 13 years in 07, I punched, man. I got, I got hired by Masaba, Piedmont, and American Eagle, and I took the American Eagle route. Okay. Yeah. Did you start nice. uh, flying like? Yeah. What did you start out? Yeah, the I went straight to the jet. I went straight to the jet. I went straight to the Embraer. Yeah, yeah. It was literally one week. One week before, I was flying a single engine one seventy two, and then the next week, I was in training on a, on a jet. So it was it was pretty cool, man. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's a little different. <laughs> yeah, it, it was awesome. definitely it was a definitely a chest stuck out, shit don't stink moment. Right, exactly. <laughs> well deserved as well. Well deserved. 
<laughs> Perfectly yeah. put. So did, uh, there you go. Yes. Yeah, so did you uh, yeah, continue in that, or then you you obviously uh, probably moved into some other aircraft, correct? Yeah, I stayed at I stayed at Eagle for seven years, and then I was lucky enough to get hired right off the street by American. And when I when okay. I came over to American, yeah, when I came over to American, I flew to the MD eighty for about nine months. Then I picked up the seven thirty seven, flew it for what three years, and then by accident mm-hmm. I got the seven five seven six. My uh, I had it on <laughs> there on my dream sheet or on my bid. Uh, ever since I got to the company, and I didn't, and I didn't think nothing else of it because they were going to park the fleet. And all of a sudden, one day, boom! You've been awarded seven thirty, uh, seven fifty-seven, seven sixty-seven uh, FO. And I was like, oh well, I guess that's that. So here I am, a year and a half, going on two years later, still on the airplane. So, but the thing about it is, man, a seven five is such an awesome airplane. There, mm. There's to be a uh, a. Uh, a uh, narrow body, a big narrow body, long range airplane. There's no mm-hmm. other narrow body airplane that can do what it can do. That's why Delta yeah. still uh-huh. had theirs and United still had theirs, man. The A3, the A321 and all that stuff, it can hold more people or whatever, but it just can't. If you, if there's anything in the, in the load with wet runway, mm-hmm. like you're trying to get from Hawaii back to the mainland states, it can't, it can't, uh-huh. it can't take all the people and their stuff. And they can't take all the stuff and the people, but the seven fifty seven, you yeah, you can cram it with all the all the people, all the junk, man, and you're flying out of there. Right after, right the day they reopened the tower in Vegas, because you know the tower in Vegas closed for like a few days because of COVID, right? You right. guys hear about I that? Hear that. Uh, yep. Yeah. 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 We uh, I went up there to pick up one of our airplanes to take it to Roswell, and the captain. You know, he said he was going to retire in seven months and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, yeah, I'm not going to press the issue of flying. This could be my last flight in the 75. So, yeah, I'm going mm-hmm. to let the dude go. You know, he's the captain. I'm going to let him do his thing. And I suggested, <laughs> yeah. to, him, I suggested to do a max power takeoff with him. And he was like, yeah, if you get it, they probably, they probably won't give it to me. They probably won't give it to us. I said, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll try it. I'll work it out. So mm-hmm. I put all the numbers <laughs> in the box and stuff like that for a max power takeoff. And um, I mean, the coolest, the coolest clearance I've ever made in my life. Just hearing all the fighter guys when I used to launch my jets out, hearing, hearing my pilots when I was a crew chief ask for a max performance takeoff. I did it just like them. I forgot what flight number, what I was. I mean, I just called groundless and American and such and such, ready to taxi at spot two, request unrestricted click, quick climb to flight level one nine or zero. And they said, <laughs> they gave me, they they gave us our taxi clearance, man. And then they gave us the clearance for the quick climb, man. We were air, we rotated about, uh, under 2000 feet. And I oh, think no we, <laughs> yeah, man, when we, uh, cause we had, it was just he and I and we only had maybe 12 or 13,000 pounds of gas on board the jet period. Oh, yes, and, uh, man. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, it, and let me tell you, man, when we, when the airplane came off the ground and the captain rotated, he wasn't ready for that shit. He was, his, <laughs> he was, his body, his brain, everything was still at the gate and the airplane was going, man. <laughs> uh, man was I, wish I, so, I wish I could have oh, been on that, that aircraft for that. Damn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, or seen it. Yeah. S- uh, oh, yeah. Guys do that. And. <laughs> 
<laughs> Go ahead, that, Chris. That Keep be, going. We love the story. I, I thought he was going. I thought he was going to stall the freaking airplane, dude. Because the airplane. I mean, <laughs> when he when he pitched up, man, he wasn't initially following the flight director, and, and you know, you get it up there, and uh-huh. he finally started following, chasing the flight director. Man, it was above twenty degrees, and they got oh, this God. other indicator. Once you get to twenty degrees, this indicator called the pitch limit indicator starts coming down, and uh-huh. if the pitch limit indicator touches the flight director and you're in the flight director, you start getting the shaker, the stick shaker. Oh, oh okay. yeah. Damn. So, so he was like a hair from touching the PLI from the shaker, man. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's awesome. and it was all, and it was all because of angle of attack. It wasn't because the airplane was slowing down. It was because yeah. of angle attack, yeah. right? Because the airplane was okay. going to accelerate, dude. I went right in the flight instructor mode. He's the captain. Here I am taking the yoke. Not taking it from him. I'm pushing the yoke over, man. Look, you're coming to the PLI, man. Stop doing <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> right. What a cool He's like, wow, what a story. <laughs> so what, um, after looking at your Instagram, and I know we're sort of, it might be sort of switching gears a little bit, but what is um, your involvement with this uh, Italian stallion aircraft? What, oh, what is that, the Marchetti? Uh, the Marchetti, yeah. I, I know it's yeah. named the, the Italian Stallion, the, and I noticed S, you have a lot of pictures. Yeah, yeah. The S211? So is this, yeah. Is this like a, an aircraft you own, or is it kind of a hobby? Or uh, No, I wish to... I owned it. I wish I owned it. I, yeah? um, no, I'm, okay. a fly, I'm a flight instructor. The airplane's about 10, 15 minutes away from my house. We got two of them. And it's okay. through, uh, here's a shameless plug, Victory Aviation. Um, All right. <laughs> we uh, yeah we do up, we do upset recovery. We do type ratings in the airplane or type training. We do uh, what else? We do formation training, um, or we do that for those pilots. You got to have at least a private pilot's license. So we do for those pilots who want jet transition or just want to check off a bucket list item. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, it's a lot of fun. And the funny thing is. I got a buddy of mine. You, you, have you guys interviewed Acrojet yet? No, we haven't. I know that you've mentioned that before, mentioned him before. He, we're going to have to do that. Dude, he's a United. He's an XF-16 guy. He's a United. Nice. He's a United. He's a United Airbus captain out of uh, Newark. Cool. A cool dude. Mm-hmm. He was one of those dudes, man. If we went TDY to Vegas or something like that, me being an enlisted guy and him an officer, you would be out hanging out with him getting wasted. <laughs> he is. The well, dude that is, the dude is to me. <laughs> the dude is the dude is good shit. The dude is good nice. shit. Anyway, he he's a he's a big L thirty nine guy, man. And I finally hooked up with him and went up to Connecticut and flew in his L thirty nine. He threw him in the in the front seat and we blasted off. We had a good time. Ever since then, man, all I could think about was getting an L thirty nine. You know, doing it. And then I started this company and I had to get an LLC to also beat taxes and stuff like that because the taxes were eating me alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's when I uh, started Combat Voto. And um, I, I had intended on buying an L39 eventually, one okay. day. You know. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, these guys at Victory Aviation in my, here in my backyard here, they uh, like, how did I start talking to those guys? I think I started talking to them on an IG. On Instagram. Okay. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and once they make contact with you and stuff like that about if you say you might want to do something, the uh, chief pilot, the big, the big, the, the money brains guy, he's on you, dude. He's like a, he's like, <laughs> a, 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 
He's like a salesman coming to your house trying to sell you a damn vacuum cleaner. He just, he just, he just sucks. <laughs> he just sucks you in. Well, he man. know he knows you've got the aviation blood, and so he knows. Oh uh, man, blood. yeah. He's a, he's <laughs> hey, a cool yep. dude about it. He's and he's an ex F eighteen guy himself, Marine Corps. He's cool. He's cool too. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so we went out. I told him, okay, I'll do a a, a fam flight <laughs> with you guys. He said, cool. So we jumped in the backseat of it. Went and did a fam flight. Had my wife meet us out there when we landed and stuff like that. And she came out. So he's, he's talking about me coming out and, and wanting to get the type rating and jet so I can rent the airplane. He wants these guys to rent this airplane. I'm like, there's no mm-hmm. way in hell I'm going to rent an airplane for $2,500 an hour. That's just not going to work. <laughs> We're just not doing this. <laughs> he, all he can think That's of, like a citation jet to the Bahamas. <laughs> dude, it's like, I mean, it's, he, he, he calls us all rich airline pilots. I was like, the hell with that, dude. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, and, and we started talking, and it, and, it, and it came out of my mouth that I had a CFI and all this stuff like that. He said, well, and he's trying to make money on the airplane, right? He said, mm-hmm. well, if you buy the type rating, if you come out and get the type rating, buy the type rating. You can come out and be a CFI with us, man. You can get all your hours just instructing or doing, you know, doing whatever. And believe it or not, my wife gave me the green light. She gave me the head nod. And I was like, shocked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good lady. You're like expecting a no, and you're like, well, that's okay. Oh, Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here it is. Here it is September. And I thought it was going to start snowing in Dallas in September and when it was still 90 degrees. And um, <laughs> and then we shook hands, man. And then I went and did the, did the training, got the type rating done, and all this stuff. Blah blah blah. And now, now I instruct for him. So you know, it's a whole lot of fun, man. Go ahead, and, yeah. Go out we and pull some we G- love all the all yeah all the pictures that you post. In yeah, the pull yeah, some jeans, do what's aerobatics. Uh, what's oh, the wow. uh, <laughs> what's the top speed of of that aircraft? It's uh it. It max indicators four hundred knots, and they can do max is point eight zero mile. I always love to hear aviator stories of their experiences, and uh, we'd love to hear something from you that that you can think of. I, I'm hopefully I'm not putting mm-hmm. you right on the spot on that one. Nah, man, you're <laughs> not. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to think because I have a lot of I have a lot of good flights, man. A lot of memorable stuff. I mean, heck, mm-hmm. a couple months ago, man, I was cruising over the. Uh, over the Amazon jungle, man, that was pretty cool. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and the seven six yeah. coming back to uh, Miami, that was pretty nice. Or going down to uh, Lima, Peru, that's always cool. Um, I like Hawaii. Going to Hawaii is pretty awesome. Going mm-hmm. to Hawaii is mm-hmm. pretty awesome, man. It takes forever to get there, but once you're there, man, that's pretty awesome. Um, I think yeah. I don't know. I think probably one of the most memorable things in aviation that got me the most excited was probably my first incentive ride I got in the F-15. Okay. Even, yeah. Yeah. Even, yeah. even, <laughs> even, yeah, even all, all the flying I've done, that first time I got to sit in the backseat of the jet and pretend like I was a fighter pilot, that was pretty cool, man. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't yeah. sleep that night before. I was excited. I was pumped. <laughs> and so, yeah. how, oh, how did you? <clears throat> how did you get that opportunity, Chris? And then finish your thoughts. Sorry. Well, well, I was. I I was in Saudi Arabia. I was in PSAB, and I had went. I had gone. I had deployed with the three thirty fifth, 
And usually maintainers mm-hmm. and stuff like that, man, they usually get their incentive rods when they're TDY. So when, when, when guys go to Vegas and stuff like that, there's a lot of incentive mm-hmm. rods going on and there's at least one a day. They try to at least knock out one or two a day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and oh, I nice. went with them and, and then I was out working the line, man. And the chief came up and said, Hey, you're going to get a ride. You need to go to the, uh, get up at the flight dock right now. And I was like, really, man, I was pumped. I was a kid in the candy store, man. I was, oh, I was yeah. a three striper. <laughs> Uh, three striper <laughs> at the time. And I was hanging out with the 335th fighter squadron in PSAB, man. And a lot of guys got mad, got jealous because I, because I was coming from another squadron getting a ride in one of their jets. I'm like, you know, whatever. Middle <laughs> finger to you, folks, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and the guy, the guy, George Irvin, I still talk to him. The, the pilot that flew me, his name is George Irvin. He's a, he's a FedEx guy. Now, mm-hmm. and he flew uh, C models in Jacksonville in the garb when he got off active duty. And the funny thing about it is his cousin, I went to tech school with him when we first went to the Air Force in 94. And then oh, I bought, oh, wow. then I, yeah, then I bumped into George at the BX at Shepard when he was just finishing up UPT. Mm-hmm. Then he comes to my squadron for, for, for F-15 training. And then he gives me my incentive rod. So, so that wow, was, that, that was, cool. yeah, that was something else. But, um, yeah, man, we get up there, man. We, you know, I'm just, I'm just pumped. Just, you know, we get up there, we take off, man, and do that max performance takeoff out of, uh, out of PSAB. We join up, pull G's, Ooh. go supersonic and all this stuff. But the cool, all I wanted uh-huh. to do was pull G's, man. That was the first time I've ever done that. And that is oh, the yeah. most awesome feeling ever, man. <laughs> oh, the I most bet. Awesome. Did you get sick in the yeah, F-15? No, nah, I didn't get sick. I mean, I got, you get nauseated. <laughs> Shit. Hell, I just flew, I flew with a, I flew with a student about a month ago. He made me nauseated. Almost had me puking in the backseat of the Marchetti. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> Look, I had well, I, I had to I had to take the puke I took the puke bag out and was ready to go was ready to download into it, man. I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's something memorable for you body? right there. Yeah, man. All yeah. he wanted to do, all that he wanted to do was do rolls, loops, and and it was constantly rolls, loops, blah blah. I was like, no, stop, time out, quit my airplane. Yeah. I took the airplane, <laughs> flew straight and level to get my mind off it. I had the puke bag out ready, man. I, I, I put the microphone on a cold mic and didn't say a word for like good 20 minutes, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was a little longer than I expected. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. We, we, you know, we had to get all the best moments in. It takes. Well, it is. It, it's hard to There's edit so all many of them these wonderful interviews you know down into little bite-sized snippets um speaking of bite-sized okay okay tony um, i will say it thank you for doing all the editing oh well, <laughs> yeah. okay i was just gonna leave it I as a movie, but you're welcome i'm just kidding um, i'm just kidding in thank the, you uh, in the show notes you're welcome in in the show notes uh i'll have this broken down as to who uh, appears at what time. So you can, uh, you can kind of check that out. I just recommend listening to the whole damn thing. It's going to be, cause it's going to be really, really good. Yeah.
Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's it, it was it was a lot of fun going through all those. Oh, definitely, definitely. So, thank you again, everybody, for listening to the Ramp Check podcast, especially this uh, special uh, Veterans Day um, edition, honoring those who have served our country and are who still are serving our country. Uh, Ramp Check podcast is available, of course, anywhere you can find a podcast, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Pandora, Google, Stitcher. I know I'm forgetting somebody, but you can also go to our <laughs> website and listen to it that way. Um, yes. Yes. So uh, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, uh, the Ramp Swag Store. Get on there. Buy some shit because Christmas is coming fast. That's right. Um, there's We've got almost 1,100 products on there now, uh, lots of different designs, and uh, I'm still adding uh, new designs weekly. So. All right. I was just about to upload some more uh, uh, tonight and tomorrow. So oh, nice. Awesome. Anyway. Great way to show your support. Buy some Ram swag and wear it proud. You can also obviously go to uh, our Patreon page. The link is on our website, uh, www.ramcheckglobal.com. And uh, Ryan, anything to add? Yeah, don't forget to mention um, rampcheckreport.com. I know you guys were talking about the podcast, Patreon, and the Ramp Swag Store, but I don't want everyone to forget where they can get the latest and greatest aviation news at rampcheckreport.com. Perfect. Yes. And Great. brother, I'm going to I'm going to let you do our send-off. Talking about the usual one. Seems like you have a special one planned for Veterans Day. <laughs> <laughs> Just, happy Veterans Day. Good day.